everyone, and welcome to the Growth Tribe Podcast, where we're all about growing ourselves to create lives we effing love on our terms. I'm Ellen, and I'm a former biomedical researcher turned coach who fell in love with personal growth when it empowered me to transform my health, quit my PhD, travel the world, and start my own business. But do not get me wrong, I'm still figuring my shit out too, and I'm so pumped to share what I'm learning along the way. We've got amazing interviews, big stories, tips, tricks, and no bullshit action steps that we can all learn from. So with that, welcome to this episode of The Growth Drive. Hey everybody, and welcome back to The Growth Drive Podcast. Today, we have another amazing guest on here, teaching us some very, very tangible tips about stress management and overcoming burnout and overwhelm. I know for so many of us, this is such a huge thing on a day-to-day basis, because let's be real, we live in a society that is 24-7, you know, in a lot of ways, we're feeling either pressured to take on more things, or, you know, there's just so many different things that that we want to do, that we want to have, that we want to achieve in our lives, that burnout is real. And today we have Phyllis Ginsberg on the podcast, and she is going to talk to us all about some of the ways stress shows up in our lives. But what I really love about today's podcast is not only is, you know, Phyllis an incredibly intelligent expert in this subject matter and in this field, but she also gives us some very, very powerful pieces of knowledge. This is one of those episodes where knowledge truly is power, and I cannot wait for you guys to learn all the awesome nuggets about how to better manage your stress with some very, very tangible tips, but also just to give you some knowledge about why stress can sometimes show up the way it does, how that works on a physiological level, all the things. The science nerd in me is just freaking out. I loved this, so let's get into it with Phyllis Ginsberg. Welcome to the Growth Tribe Podcast. I'm so excited to have you. I am super happy to be here, Ellen. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, yes, of course. You've got a topic, which they've already heard about in the intro, stress management, that I feel like every human on the planet can relate to, but particularly the listeners to the show. So uh, yeah, to get started, will you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ultimately got to what you do now? (sighs) Oh my gosh. Um, I know we don't have time for the long loaded version. question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually have two, two distinct stories that got me where I am today. But I'll start with in 2005, I was in burnout, working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, doing child custody evaluations. And my whole niche was high conflict divorce. So anything oh, wow. that courts had that they would send to uh, for resources or for an assessment and recommendations so that they could figure out what to do with these families, they would send to me. And I had an eight-month waiting list. I was very popular. Um, I mean, that sounds like a high-stress job if there's any high-stress job. <laughs> actually, that was piece of cake for me compared to what I dealt with in my internship, which was a lot of domestic violence, child abuse, oh, rape cases. AIDS, the, the AIDS project, that's when the first cases of AIDS were coming out. Like, mm-hmm. So divorce was tame. I loved it. I was great at it. But I said yes to too much. There wasn't mm-hmm. enough of me. And I lost me. I uh, didn't have time to spend with my kids, my husband. 
and uh, I ended up taking some time off. And that's when I immersed myself in positive psychology, which wasn't taught when I went to school, brain research, which wasn't really available as it is now. Mm -hmm. And um, I started blogging. I turned that blog into my first book called Brain Makeover. But more importantly, I got myself back in a way that I never had before. And it was incredible to see that I could really become happy because when I was growing up, I grew up with a mom who was in chronic pain with arthritis and migraine headaches. So I was the overly responsible, serious kid. Mm -hmm. I never really could let loose, let go, have fun. Like I, I wasn't the child who's, who could say, I had a great fun childhood. Mm -hmm. no, it, was a, it was a lot of work. You're kind of forced to grow up pretty quickly. Yeah, I up, grew up way faster than I needed to. And then in other areas, I was super naive. Mm -hmm. like I had no idea that the seriousness of what I was pursuing when I decided to go to therapy school was even out there, mm -hmm. uh, which left me trying to figure out a lot of life on my own. And when, when you talk about stress, dealing with a parent and probably everybody can relate to having or knowing somebody who has at least one parent who is either addicted, ill, uh, just really having a tough time. Maybe they struggle with depression. They're not around because they're working too much or they're frazzled because they're working too much. Yeah, like all of those, we used to think that somebody who grew up with a parent who had drug and alcohol problem was like the worst thing. But now studies are showing that if you grew up with a parent who has a health issue, that they're not available emotionally or physically, it's got the same detrimental effects on kids. Mm -hmm. And so that really impacted me. And then my mom died young. She died at 37. Mm -hmm. And I was only 15 and you know, trying to make sense of the world. And other, my peers didn't understand me. They didn't know how to mm -hmm. relate. Like how many people, well, I've come across a lot of people who's, who have lost a parent in their teens, mm -hmm. but the majority of people don't. Mm -hmm. So it, both of the burnout and then my whole childhood experience have prompted me to do the work I do. I went to therapy school not to help other people, but to help myself so that I could be a better mom. I could figure out how to be a better human being. I didn't want to parent my kids the way that I was parented. And I certainly didn't want to go down the path of having a horrible disease and dying young. So those pieces are why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. Once I got myself in a place where I did and I've been doing internal work probably since I was 19. Mm -hmm. uh, that self-growth journey. Yeah. Some of us are just destined, I think. We're on a personal growth journey. Way too much happens young. You've got to do something or else you're just not going to make it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't a matter of choice. It was like, oh, this here's something that, that could really benefit me. And so I've discovered several things. Uh, some people joke around that they have a, toolbox I actually have a tool shed is what I've been love it having a shed of things and so I came out with my second book called tired and hungry no more 
not your ordinary guide to reclaiming your health and happiness. Mm -hmm. Really, it is more related to my younger childhood years. Mm -hmm. It's all the same struggles. And I think today, adults and children have it much worse in that we are a 24-7 society. We don't have downtime. Stranger danger was like a big thing back in the 90s, like don't talk to strangers. And we're not as connected to other people. Neighborhoods aren't connected. Kids don't have the freedom to go out and play. They're more isolated. And all of that has a huge impact on who we become. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I love I love how you were able to connect these parts of your life, the you know, the professional burnout you were experiencing, as well as this this childhood piece to really inform your career path. I love that. I think that's a beautiful connection point there. Uh, how important do you think it was for you in kind of crafting this, this career path that you went on to take that break that you went on? Oh, the, it had to happen. Is it, you can only negotiable. <laughs> you, and a, you can only work so far pushing it before something breaks. So you can drive your, your car at a fast speed, but at some point something in the engine is going to give out. Mm-hmm. And it's no different for us if we don't get adequate sleep. And I, I did a lot of research, cutting edge research on sleep for my new book. Mm-hmm. Aside from thoughts, I think thoughts are your number one thing. If you can get your thoughts straight, like that's a, probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Second is sleep. If you can't get enough sleep, your brain doesn't function well. You don't have the ability to access the good coping skills. And when you're sleep deprived or too stressed, you forget that you even have a toolbox. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's so true. Coping skills don't work when you don't have adequate rest. Your body can't heal and function and rejuvenate if you don't get enough rest. Mm-hmm. And there's no way when you're pushing it a mile a minute or faster uh, with all the things that we either commit to or we want to do or have to do to be able to, uh, to, to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think had I continued and not taken a sabbatical, my health definitely would have been compromised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you kind of went in this direction with your story because that was something I was really interested in from the perspective of stress. And it seems like it's something you addressed in the two books is the damage that stress causes, not just from a quality of life perspective, but also from a physical perspective. So could you, could you Uh speak to a little bit about that just to kind of lay the context of why this is so dang important? Yes. And this, this is why I love what I do is because it makes such it makes logical sense and there is research to back it up. Like intuitively I knew that I was onto something before the research was available to, to say, okay, when you have stressful thoughts, you produce stress hormones mm-hmm. because the brain doesn't know if you did something or just thought about it. And you can be sitting and you're sitting wherever you are. Maybe you're not even looking at your phone. You have no new news and you're thinking about something that you're worried about, anxious about, you've got some fear around, you can produce a stress response just by thinking about it. And nothing happened. 
You didn't experience anything. You didn't do anything. You're just sitting there thinking. And this is one of the things that as humans, I think we naturally do because we have a survival brain. Mm -hmm. Survival brain in today's world is too stressful. We needed it before to survive, but the rest of life wasn't as stressful. Now, life has all kinds of stressors, and we have the survival brain that says we are in fear and chronic stress, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. You open your email, and you see maybe it's from a boss or somebody, an ex, or somebody you don't want to deal with, and that can produce stress symptoms, uh, the stress response, a fight or flight response where you want to fight or flee. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. Yeah. We shouldn't be as humans. We're not designed to be in chronic stress. And what happens physiologically is that the blood that would normally be circulating nicely throughout your whole body is now going to your arms and legs, your hands and feet. So you can run fight or flee. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. Well, and I'm thinking about, um, I just released a podcast episode um, not too long ago as we're recording this, featuring one of my very good friends talking about mental health and anxiety. And she was talking about some of the things that triggered her from an anxiety perspective. And mm -hmm. I've never suffered from anxiety, but I feel the, I'm, I'm very introverted. Contrary to what everybody who listens to the show thinks, I am actually very introverted. And I don't love to talk on the phone, but part of my day job requires me to talk on the phone quite a bit. And when I see that ring come through, I do, I feel that I have a physiology response to the stress of, oh, who's calling me? Which student is this? You know, et cetera. Right. And that shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Uh, a normal occurrence, like an everyday occurrence. Mm -hmm. What the what really happens in your body when you don't have adequate blood flow circulating through? Mm -hmm. It impacts your immune system, mm -hmm. your digestion. Your brain doesn't get good blood flow, so that you don't have access to your thoughts and memories. Mm -hmm. Gives you the opportunity to make some really poor decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and probably all of that then impacts the sleep, which you were talking about is so crucial to all of this. Right. And if you can't turn your brain off at night to go to sleep or you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about things and worrying and stressing, it's oh. not good. Yeah. I literally just had a conversation about that with a family friend the other day about how she can't turn her, her brain off at night and the thus can't fall asleep. And, you know, how many of us can relate to that? There's about 70 million Americans, it's reported, have difficulty with sleep. Mm -hmm. And that's not great if you have to show up and be productive on a job or you're out driving a car on the, the freeways or the highways. A lot of accidents happen because of chronic fatigue, mm -hmm. exhaustion, mm -hmm. lack mm -hmm. of sleep. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I love that we've touched a little bit on like the damaging emotional and physical aspects of stress. Uh, I kind of want to circle a little back to the burnout that you talked about earlier, because burnout, whew, burnout is something that totally resonates with me and I'm sure to a lot of people that are listening. So 
how does burnout correlate to stress? Because I feel like a lot of us think of stress as something that's very acute. You know, I had a stressful work day. I had, you know, a stressful, I, I don't know, maybe sometimes it's a, a month, you know, the end of the year, my brother works in like an accounting field and he has certain times of year that are very stressful for him. Mm-hmm. But burnout is a more, almost like a more chronic thing. So how does burnout relate to stress? Is it different? Yeah, burnout. I actually uh, looked up the definition. Ooh, I like definitions. <laughs> And I'll just read it because this is a, it says it so clearly. Mm-hmm. Burnout is a special type of work-related stress, a state of physical or emotional exhaustion that also involves a sense of reduced accomplishment and loss of personal identity. I like that, especially because we kind of really briefly before we started recording touched on identity. So can you kind of elaborate a little bit on that identity aspect of the definition? So the identity piece, if, if you're wrapped up in your work and your work is your identity and you can't accomplish things at the level that you're used to, who are you when you're not working? <gasps> okay, we're going to use me as a guinea pig here because this is exactly how I felt when I was in grad school. Um, I went into grad school. My identity was wrapped up in PhD student. I'm a scientist. You know, I'm a high achieving individual. Like if there were any components of my identity, that was it. And grad school did not go well for me. I had a, I had a big thing was a project that just wasn't working. I constantly felt like I was beating my head against the wall with this project. Sounds awful. And I, I mean, I hit, the second year of grad school and it's, you know, a five to seven year PhD program. And I was just like, I, I don't know how to continue. Like that was, is that like not textbook burnout? (laughs) What, you know, if we're really aware and we look at the signs of what's not working, and this is one of the, the takeaways that I came away with after I went through my period of burnout and regrouping was if something feels like it's not right, I need to think twice about it. Another piece is I am not a salmon. I am not going to swim upstream to accomplish what I want. (laughs) I love that so much. I'm giggling. I have a lot of fishermen in my family. (laughs) In the past, I would just take on whatever was given to me, assuming I can do it. I can handle it. I never said, no, I'm not willing to take on a case. I, I was like, bring it on. Like Mm -hmm. I've been in the trenches. I can do it. Not a big deal. I never once asked, do I want to do this? Ooh. Ooh. I like that. That's almost like a conversation about boundaries too. Mm hmm. Because, like, I think that was also what I was struggling with is I didn't feel like and it's almost boundaries and identity, too. I couldn't. I also prided myself on being a problem solver. That was part of my identity, too. And this was a problem I couldn't seem to solve. And so I would keep beating on it with no relief and no break and no boundary. So how how do you think boundaries play into that? Exactly. When you do what you think you're supposed to do rather than what's right for you you are just going along based on either what somebody else told you 
that you should do or you think you should do or this seems like a good thing and I'm capable so I think I'll do this I'll go get my PhD because that seems like a good thing to do mm -hmm. Dr. Ellen sounds great doesn't it I yeah. thought it sounded great <laughs> my friend is in business and I struggled just to get through like I have a, a good brain for business but the competition was fierce and like I'm not highly competitive and I wasn't as uh, prepared academically for college because of all the mental and emotional traumas that I had through my childhood and my mom dying when I was 15 and mm -hmm. you know I know looking back like I was depressed after that and there was no one to talk to and it was just a mess and like people would say oh you're so privileged to go to school and get a business degree and stuff and like if you knew how hard it was and how much I struggled and and I didn't want to be there and it was just difficult mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so much of that derives from I always say um, that should is one of my least favorite words should is I believe one of the most dangerous words in the English language because it takes people you know it it makes people feel obligated and it takes people down paths that they may not want to be down you know whatever direction we're looking at like whether it's career or relationships should so dangerous we are so fortunate that in this day and age like this is the first time in human history that it's okay to pursue happiness mm -hmm. it's it's more becoming more the norm to do a passion and a purpose or a calling. In the past, it was all survival. Mm -hmm. But we're shifting to what I call possibility thinking instead of survival thinking. And this is what I teach people uh, when I work with them. It's in my books, how to shift so that you're not just in stress, worry, and fear, but you can actually think about, wow, what else is possible? what might be right for me what do i want to pursue what's my calling or my purpose and i i don't think that any prior generation had that luxury mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to pursue something that resonates with them mm -hmm. wow i love that I, I i never thought of it that way that truly it is. It's a, a huge shift in thinking and no wonder there's so much resistance to it. That history has all been about this is how we live. We live to survive and whatever will give us that survival is what we do. Period. Exactly. Full stop. Yep. Yes. And that's why probably when you decided to scrap the PhD program, you had relatives that were like, what are you doing, Ellen? <laughs> How are you going to survive? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I had, I had actually I was surprised by how supportive most of my mentors were, but I had friends who they were very, very good friends of mine that were like, you are being an idiot. Yeah. Like, you are making a stupid, stupid mistake. And yeah, I think for me, and maybe this is, I got to a point where I was so low that it was these three initials after my name, it was not worth my sanity. It wasn't mm -hmm. period. And I don't, I don't want people to get to that point to get to that. So low point before they start trying to claw themselves back out. So how can we help people be more proactive about realizing the stress that they're, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but almost allowing 
into their life? How can we make them more proactive about changing that so they can start having this more possibility driven thinking? Right. So, well, it looks like people allow for these problems to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to give you one more piece of information. Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. Go for it. Is that we function mostly from autopilot about 95 to 97% of everything we think, feel, do mm -hmm. is out of our awareness. And so, yeah. so we're doing what we do automatically. And the best way to get to a place of figuring out what's going on is to start becoming aware. I love it when people say that. I'm always the person who says awareness is the first step. So I love it when other people do. Yep. Because if you're not aware, that means kind of you're like sleepwalking through life. It could be the same day every day. Mm -hmm. Nothing really changes except maybe the characters and, you know, works a little different, but it's going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And if you're feeling distressed, unhappy, depressed, anxious, that you're uh, overcompensating with food or some other way of numbing out. Those are all signs that like wake up call. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't do their wake up call until they're forced to, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. makes sense. Like no one wants to intentionally get out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard, um, I think it was Tony Robbins, who he talks about the idea of pain versus pleasure. And sometimes we have to get to the point where it's so painful to remain the same that, you know, the, the fear of change and the fear of discomfort, the pain of staying the same is worse. Right. Annis Nin wrote a, a quote. You probably know it. Yeah. The, the pain of... Uh, Oh, I got it in my book here. Isn't it? Isn't that the one? It's like the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of. Yes. Yeah. The same. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it stuck with me like, wow, this is true. I, I can't stay the same. And once I went through burnout and you know, started using and developing tools that worked for me, mm -hmm. I recognized I could never go back to the person I used to be. Mm-hmm. And most people don't have any clue about what their identity might be like. And so leaving an identity behind is scary for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Not knowing what the future holds. Am I going to be able to carve out something that, that I'm going to enjoy? Who am I going to be? Will anybody still want to be my friend? Am I going to be disowned? Like, mm -hmm. All of those are, are legitimate questions. Mm -hmm. And I think I, before we move on from that, what I really think is important is you said like some people experience all of these fears and these questions. I, I really feel like everybody does. Even people who have decided to leave an identity behind, they've still experienced that. Like I still experience the fear of who am I if I'm not a scientist? Who like, who will I be in five years? I love certainty. I wish I had a crystal clear path of this is how I'm going to make all of these amazing dreams come true. I wish I did. And it's terrifying to not have it. But I think when you've been the person who's left the identity behind, it comes back to that. The pain of staying in that place is too much. 
And there, therefore, the fear is it's not gone. I don't believe in fearlessness, but it's minimized. I can tell you that from, from a survival brain, if you're wearing your survival brain, mm-hmm. you're going to be in fear because that's how you're programmed. Mm-hmm. But once you make shifts to possibility thinking and you're not looking like in the rear view mirror, this is one of the analogies that I like to use is that if you're always looking in the rear view mirror to prevent a reoccurrence of something in the past that went haywire, like a past failure, uh, you don't want to get fired from a job. You don't want to lose another relationship. You don't want to, uh, you know, gain back all the weight that you lost, all these things that little traumas or big traumas were constantly on the lookout. That's the subconscious is like, oh, we're not going to do that because we don't want to experience this again. Mm-hmm. But when you can shift to, I'm going to look forward to where I'm going. I may not know what's beyond the next step or two or three or five, but I'm going forward. I have maybe a vision mm-hmm. or maybe you don't even know where you're going, but you know, you don't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. And if each day, all you did was ask, I wonder what's going to happen today. And you approach life with curiosity rather than fear. Mm-hmm. Or you look and say, hmm, what can I do today that would be helpful to get where I'm going? You don't even have to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. But just asking yourself some questions so that you can move forward mm-hmm. with possibility, with curiosity, instead of with fear. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research on from the field of positive psychology that when we have fear it actually prevents us from moving forward Mm -hmm. people who are happier are more resilient Mm -hmm. they are healthier they earn more money they have better relationships they're easier to get along with Uh, people who are happier happier with themselves their identity their self-worth the list goes on Mm -hmm. and there's a reason for it because of that shift and i don't know that everyone in positive psychology frames it like I do, Mm -hmm. but I've got it in this really simple survival thinking or possibility thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love that the example you gave of, you know, I I love creating the big vision. That's how my brain works is I actually did an activity the other day with my coach where we, she tried to have me create a goal now and then grow it over the future. I actually don't like that. I like to start with the big vision and then funnel it down to what can I do now? But some people aren't like that. And I love that you acknowledge that some people, they need to just say, okay, what can I do today? What can I do to move the needle today to make this a great day? What can I do to make that happen? I don't like knowing, like I I have a, a big, vision and goal for myself, but I don't want to know all the pieces because I like taking it one step at a time. I'm, I'm more slow to make decisions to Mm -hmm. move into something. It has to feel safe or at least doable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise it's like, no, I'm not doing that. And if I know too far in advance, what's going to happen, I think it might scare me. 
like if I really knew what it took to get where I am today, I don't know that I would have signed on for it. Mm-hmm. But by doing what a little bit every day in the direction of where I'm going, like, wow, here I am. An author of two books talking on a podcast to Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. of other, you know, exciting things and people are interested in, in what I'm offering as solutions to a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it felt too big, I think it would have scared me. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Sometimes we can have the grand vision, but if we try to push the vision forward too quickly, we self-sabotage because we don't feel ready and we're scared. And yeah, I think that's, that's totally valid perspective to take. Yeah, for sure. So you have such this, this wide breadth of tools that you use your tool shed shed, to start helping people cultivate this possibility thinking as opposed to what, what was the other perspective stress thinking or, Survival thinking. Survival thinking. That's what it was. Yeah. I was like, I know it starts with an S. <laughs> so what are some of your, your top tips for helping people to cultivate more of a possibility thinking perspective? Well, awareness is a great first place to start, <laughs> which requires slowing down enough. I, you, don't have, you don't have to sit and meditate if that's not your thing. Um, but for people who do like, to meditate or they feel like they can sit for five or 10 minutes and just be quiet and still. That's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, deep breathing. Mm-hmm. Even if you took five deep breaths. I'm literally should, doing it right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote <laughs> one of my weekly readings in brain makeover is you live how you breathe. And I could breathe just enough to barely stay survive, to survive. When I was in burnout, my last few months of working, mm-hmm. I noticed I could be in a two-hour session doing assessments with high-conflict divorce cases. I'm like, gosh, I've hardly taken a breath. Mm-hmm. Literally. Literally, like I'm barely breathing, but I'm present and I'm doing my work. But breathing, thank goodness it's automatic or I probably wouldn't have continued breathing. Mm -hmm. So some deep breaths. I use this exercise when I work with my community of people that come together. We do EFT tapping, which I tell you, oh, you know. I actually, yeah, I had someone on the podcast back in January um, who did a little bit on EFT. I'm... I feel like I'm slowly understanding it. So yeah, definitely tell us a little bit more about EFT. Right. So first I'll tell you that I do this getting centered exercise and I just ask people to put, like they can keep their eyes open or closed and put your attention on your feet on the floor. Okay. And just notice your feet on the floor. And after about 10 or 15 seconds, then notice you're back against the chair. And just focus on that one area. You could focus on your breath. You could focus on your hands. Uh, It doesn't matter what you focus on. You could focus on sounds that you hear in the room. It's just another technique to become more mindful of Mm -hmm. what's going on within you. Mm -hmm. We're so outer focused that if we can turn inward, it's going to help calm things down. And I only do it for about a minute. 
and it gets people present. Mm -hmm. So uh, EFT tapping is one of the tools that I use. And I even have a community of people that come together to do it in person and by phone. Mm -hmm. So if any of your listeners are interested, that is a possibility. That's cool. I've never heard of somebody doing it by phone before. Oh, all the time. Um, one of the benefits of tapping is that it calms the fight or flight response. Just by doing tapping will calm the amygdala in the brain, the fight or flight response that produces stress hormones. It reduces cortisol levels. So it's going to help with immune system functioning. Uh, people who have weight issues, cortisol is correlated mm -hmm. with that. There are so many benefits to calming your nervous system. Mm -hmm. uh, for some people, they can do it with meditation or yoga or deep relaxation, breathing. But doing tapping, mm -hmm. the emotional freedom technique, using some statements that go with it, you can free stored emotions while calming the nervous system. And research has shown that it actually rewires the brain. So I rewire the brain using that with possibilities and anchoring in when people are ready where they're going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And both my books have tapping uh, in them. And Tired and Hungry No More has 10 tapping scripts that have both. Well, they have three, three rounds acknowledging possibilities and anchoring in. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I actually just recently got my NLP practitioner certification and we don't talk about EFT, but we talk about reframing, which I feel like is ultimately what EFT is used to do. It's to reframe your disempowering to a more empowering belief, right? No, actually. No? Okay. Not, uh, it's to acknowledge what's oh. going on. EFT was originally, uh, well, it was discovered by Roger Callahan, mm -hmm. who was a psychologist, and I personally knew him. And he used it for fears, phobias, uh, anxiety, stress. Like It's been used and still being used mm -hmm. a lot by people coming back from the trauma of war, mm -hmm. the school shootings that we hear about, Sandy Hook Elementary School. They used tapping. They sent a team in there. Uh, so it has a lot of science now and research, mm -hmm. uh, that shows what it actually does, but it frees stored emotions. So that if I were to, uh, work with, well, you gave me an example. Oh, I'm trying to remember of something that you were af afraid of or. Oh, um. Now I don't even remember. What it was. But once once we get to the core issue, mm -hmm. which isn't difficult to do, because most people, it, for me, it's really easy because I have super sharp assessment skills. Mm -hmm. But most people give me enough information, and then I work intuitively. Which, mm -hmm. when you're not stressed and anxious and worried and all that, you actually have intuition and guidance that mm -hmm. you can listen to. Mm -hmm. And with doing 10, 15, 20 minutes of tapping, I can permanently release and free someone from their anxiety or fear or phobia, mm -hmm. whatever that might be. 
there might be more layers to it, but mm-hmm. you know, let's say you've got it on a scale of one to 10, you've got something serious that you're mm-hmm. really concerned about. Um, we can bring it down to a three or a four in 10, 15 minutes. Wow. That's pretty significant. Wow. And it's not reframing. That is releasing stored okay. emotions and uh, yes. Yeah. Puncture without needles. Nice, nice. Acupuncture. Yeah. With, yeah. And, you know, actually, I think the last gal who I had on compared it to acupuncture as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So this is something that you could use for phobias, like very, very extreme fears, but also for more of the like the anxious fears. Right. So you can use it for everyday stressors. Mm-hmm. I use it as well for people who, let's say you, you want to up level your your business. I work with several uh, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and people in business that I'll ask them, are you ready for this next stage? You say you want this, but are you ready? Mm-hmm. And on a scale of one to 10, they might say, no, I'm not ready. And it's like mm-hmm. an eight. Well, then we do tapping to get them ready and we work on whatever fears are coming up, like the fear of having too much responsibility, the fear, I don't know if I can maintain this. I don't know if I can show up and yeah. learn what I need to do and, and pull this off, right? So there's a lot of, as we forge into unfamiliar territory, that's when you might say minor fears come up. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're major, but it's not like we were traumatized because we just came back from war or experienced something. Yeah. They're voluntary. Yeah. No, and I, and I think I like what you pointed out there from the perspective of we paint them as minor. And I, oh, now I can't remember who, what interview I did. We were talking about comparing fear or and comparing pain as well. And how sometimes we think, well, I just need to get over it because mm-hmm. my fear and my pain has nothing on this person who maybe they're suffering from PTSD, whether they were, you know, went to war or they were in one of these school shootings or whatever. My pain has nothing on that. My fear has nothing on that. So I just need to get over it. Yeah. Wrong. Mm-hmm. That's just stuffing it again. And the more that we stuff our emotions and think these thoughts aren't important and they don't impact us, the more we're just storing them in our body. And at some point they're going to show up and create a problem. Mm -hmm. But none of this was even on the radar. Hardly anybody that I know talks about this in this way. Uh, And certainly mainstream, they don't have any idea. You store your emotions in your body and you can release them and you actually can get relief in a short Mm -hmm. amount of time. Mm -hmm. We don't have to suffer. Yeah, I love that. And I think what I think is so tangible about the steps that you've given is you've got the awareness piece. And I feel like that's almost like two pronged. It's it's awareness of what the things are that stress that are stressing you out and also awareness of how you're reacting to them and how you're exacerbating the stress. Um, It's presence and mindfulness. And I feel like for so many of us, we you know, I feel like I've gotten the first two steps. Mm-hmm. but I've never done the release part. And for those of you that are listening to this, cause I know there's some of you out there that struggle with, you know, is this real? Because that's, that's stuff that's crossed my, you know, very scientific analytical brain. I, I mean, I'm feeling in my gut. It's just telling me like, this is something you need to try. 
if you've never done it before, don't knock it till you've tried it. And this is something I need to try. So maybe for those of us that have gotten those first two steps, we need to take the plunge into step three and release those emotions. It's possible to release things in a short amount of time. But what I caution people is don't just think that having a, an expression of anger or sadness or uh, however that you are going to release that is going to make a difference. You know, get up, get out a, a sad, sappy movie and a box of tissues and I'm going to be all better. No, doing the, the tapping on these meridian points, like the way that it works um, and using the statements is what makes it effective. Mm-hmm. It's not just, I'm going to have a good cry or I'm going to hit a pillow and yell and scream in my car. Mm-hmm. I call that a way of releasing something. Mm-hmm. But if you don't change the thoughts that precede the emotions, you're still going to end up with the same mm-hmm. thing. It's temporary. It's a Band-Aid if you. Yes. Yeah. Everything wow. starts with a thought. Mm-hmm. And even when you talked about the awareness, even if all you were aware of was, I'm not happy. I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. That's awareness. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have some magical awareness of some epiphany or an aha. It's just, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. Simple as that. Yep. Time for a redirect. Time for some possibility thinking. Exactly. <laughs> oh. I love it. For the second time in six months now, I'm like, all right, I need to check out this EFT thing. And I I definitely, I love that you have phone in. You're probably going to be hearing from me um, on one of these phone in EFT sessions because I I love that. That's that's very intriguing. And I love that you presented, and we need this. This is why I always like love bringing in people who, you know, they do similar things, but they talk about it so differently because you approach this EFT in particular from very much a grounded analytical scientific perspective, which very much resonates with me. So, so thank you for for what you do and thank you for the way you present the information you present. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple wrap up questions that I love to ask everybody to bookend all the interviews in the same way. Um, The first of which is, this is a very personal growth oriented podcast and you've definitely given people some tools today that will help them grow themselves. What does growth mean to you? I feel like I grow every day and that it could be just by doing this interview with you is a growth experience. I'm probably not the same person I was when we started because we've had this experience. So growth is this ever-changing, I think, just we we aren't the same based on every experience we have. Mm-hmm. Like in nature, everything is changing. You'll look at a rose and it, it's a bud today and it opens up a few days later and then it kind of withers away. And, and I think that nothing in nature stays the same. And if we as humans could accept that change is inevitable instead of fighting it, we can mm-hmm. say, wow, we could grow every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I love your, your acknowledging the micro moments of growth and change that can happen. I feel like sometimes those don't mm-hmm. get enough of enough credit. They don't get their due for sure. Yes, for sure. Uh, the next question I love to ask people, cause I'm big on, I'm a book nerd. I love reading personal growth and self-help books. 
you've already talked about your two books. Uh, do you have any uh, additional resources that you would recommend to people if they wanted to learn more about this stuff? Well, I'm reading a book on brain research, but I don't think that, that would be one that I would highly recommend to your audience because it's probably too, uh, well, maybe it's it's not up their alley. <laughs> Is it a little nerdy and a little sciencey? Yeah, it's very, very sciencey. Okay, yeah, our brain research book, and then we've got your two books: our brain makeover and tired no more, tired and hungry no more, right? Right. Awesome. Okay, yeah, and I'll link both of those in the show notes, so if people are interested, they can definitely check them out. Okay, and then last but not least, uh, it's the shameless plug opportunity. Um, if people are loving hearing from you, they're interested in maybe doing an EFT phone call or learning more about EFT as a technique. Uh, where can people find you online? They can find me at my website, phyllisginsburg.com. And one of my tabs is Tapping with Phyllis. You can watch a tapping video. I have several, but an introduction to tapping on stress is there. I have some tapping without words, I think. There's a link to my YouTube channel with more tapping. And I have a community that I do tapping with. So if you're interested, definitely check it out and awesome yeah lots of lots of different ways to get you plugged in um lots of different ways to connect i love it thank you again so much for all that you do and thank you for coming on here with us today oh my pleasure i appreciate you having me on Ellen. thank you but before you go one last thing i just want to say thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of the growth tribe and thank you so much for your support if you've been enjoying what you're hearing and you want to help me and all of our wonderful guests get their message out, there are a few things you could do. You could send an episode that you really loved to a friend that you really think would appreciate it. You could subscribe and give us a five-star review on iTunes, or you could take a screenshot and post it in your Instagram or Facebook story. I love stories, and I would love nothing more than the opportunity to shout you out and send you a massive thank you. Once again, thank you so much for listening and thank you for being a part of the Growth Tribe.